So that's First Peter chapter 4 from verse 7. And this is what Peter says. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, it is, it's your glory and your power that are, that should be our main concern as your people, that we live every day ready to face you, ready to look into your eyes, ready to give account of our lives to you. Father, help us to see that the Christian life is something that we should take seriously. Lord, be, be with us tonight. Speak to us. Work through us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I think uh, all of us who've been on the, the Christian road for any kind of reasonable period of time would admit that there are many, many questions of faith. And not just questions for those who stand outside of faith, no, but even for those who are in a, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, there are questions of faith, questions that we have about our faith. Now, of course, we know that the Bible gives us insights, and at times the Bible gives us, as we understand it properly, gives us the complete answer to the questions that we have. But, you know, a lot of the time, that's not the case. And I want to say I believe that it's right that that should be so. Because there has to be an element of, of mystery. There has to be an element of the unknown and the unknowable if faith is truly to be faith. And often what, what the Bible actually does is it, it doesn't so much answer that question why, but rather it tells us how. That is how we should live in the midst of this mystery of faith. For some people, though, particularly the more cynical unbelievers, this just isn't acceptable. Like for the man who told his, his Christian friend, I don't have anything to do with things I don't understand. And by that, he was having a go at Christianity and, and the very concept of faith itself. Well, his friend asked, have you had your breakfast this morning? Yes, came the reply, but what's that got to do with religion? Did you have any butter on your toast, persisted his friend. Yes, replied the man, increasingly bewildered. Well, can you tell me how a black and white cow eating green grass can make white milk that makes yellow butter? No, I can't, admitted the sceptic. Well, his friend advised, I, would, I wouldn't have anything to do with breakfast either then if I was you. Now, okay, 
What we're going to try and do this evening is look at two questions, two questions of faith that come out of this passage in 1 Peter. The main question being, the end of all things, the second coming, the final judgment is near. What should that then mean for us in the here and now? With the supplementary question being, what does it mean the end of all things is near? What does that mean? For, for this was written almost 2,000 years ago, but the end still has not yet come, the way Peter said it is near. Now what I want to do is I want to try and deal with the, the supplementary question first. I want to just get this out of the way before moving on to look at, at the real core of what this passage is actually teaching. So what does it mean then? The end of all things is near. When even now, the end has not yet come. Well, what I believe it means is that then and now, all the major events in God's plan, in God's drama, if you like, of redemption, have taken place. They've all taken place, and so the scene is set, and has been for 2,000 years, for Christ to return. The creation, the fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, and the return from exile. Then the birth of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, to establish the church. All of it has taken place. And all that now remains is the end of this age and the ushering in of Christ's glorious new age as he returns as Lord and Judge. But you know, that doesn't fully answer the question, does it? As to why is it that it's still taken so long for the end to finally come. Why has God waited 2,000 years and more? Well, you know, the Bible doesn't give us any final definitive answer as to why this is so, what God's purpose is in this. But it does, though, give us some insights into why this is so. For instance, in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, where there it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And another key verse I feel here that sheds light is, is Genesis fifteen sixteen, where God is talking there to Abraham of his descendants' eventual taking of the promised land in the future. And he, and he says to him, he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now you see, as we put these verses together, I think there are certain things that we can safely say. First, that though he created time, yet God himself, the creator, stands outside of time. And therefore time then 
means an awful lot to us. It's got great significance, but it means comparatively little to the God who stands at the beginning and at the end of time itself. And as to why God seems to take so long within this time framework, which does mean so much to us, well, I believe this is all tied up, really, with his relationship with us, with with mankind. You see, on the one hand, he hesitates to allow sin to reach its ultimate expression, as it talks of it in Genesis at that time. He allows that. That sin then, as it reaches its ultimate expression, might then be seen in all its ugliness. It might be seen for the true horror that it really is. And that so then, as he finally sweeps in to act as judge, to put sin to an end, that then in contrast to this, his glory, his majesty, might in that contrast then be seen For all it is. On the other hand though, as he waits for sin to reach its ultimate expression, at the same time God also reaches out his hand in grace to mankind. Seeking during this time again and again to give man the opportunity of repentance. Seeking in grace to give them the opportunity of by faith in Christ, faith in his death, his sacrifice, the opportunity of escaping from that judgment that is to come. Okay, that's the the supplementary question answered, at least it's answered for the best of my ability, but let's go back to the main question. The end of all things, the second coming, the final judgment is near. So what should that then mean in the here and now for us? How should this impact on the way that we live? Well, I would suggest to you that we're told here that this should mean three priorities in our lives. That if we are living in the light of the second coming, that there should be three priorities. Others maybe, but certainly three priorities in our lives. And the first is prayer. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, it's interesting that the exact opposite of the phrase clear-minded and self-controlled is really to have an unsound mind, being immature in our thinking and our judgment, maybe getting frenzied and fanatical and it's interesting that that's just the kind of effect that thinking about the second coming does seem to have on some people you know because they take the the portions of the bible that refer to the end times and they focus on them become obsessed with them and try to interpret them in, in very precise and often frankly pretty unusual ways to present this total picture of just what's going to happen at the end, and even at times just exactly when the end is going to be. But you see, these scriptures aren't supposed to be interpreted in these kind of ways. Because they don't actually present the whole canvas of the mystery of what God's going to do at the end. Rather, I believe, 
what we have here is more like a looking through a keyhole and kind of catching just a corner of a great masterpiece. So you see, what we can see there is beautiful and true. But if we try and build, construct the whole picture out of that, well, it's more than possible that we'll be way off beam, way off target. And as for the precise dates of the Second Coming, you know, I have to say it defeats me how people can ever feel that they can state with any kind of certainty the date of the Second Coming in the light of the clear teaching of Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus himself said, Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And you know, all of this is by no means a new thing. It's not a kind of modern phenomenon. In fact, a guy, Stephen Travis, in his book, I Believe in the Second Coming, he records, and this is factual, I've probably shared it before because I love this one, he records that in 1842, a Roman Catholic priest wrote a book predicting that the end of the world would end in 1847. On seeking the church's authority to publish this book, he was granted permission to publish it in 1848. <laughs> it's not often the Vatican's got a sense of humour, but there you go. And Warren Wearsby, he shares some helpful testimony about this in his own life in a, a little commentary that he's written on, on First Peter. And he shares there that he says, that earlier in my ministry, I gave a message on prophecy that sought to explain everything. I have since filed that outline and will probably never look at it again, except when I need to be humbled. A pastor friend of mine who suffered through my message said to me after the service, Brother, you must be on the planning committee for the return of Christ. I got his point, but he made it even more pertinent when he said quietly, I've moved from the program committee to the welcoming committee. And he goes on and he says, I'm not suggesting that we not study prophecy or that we become timid about sharing our interpretations, though I think we should be a bit cautious. What I am saying is that we should not allow ourselves to get out of balance because of an abuse of prophecy. And the biggest problem is when people get really dismissive of other people and aggressive towards other people. It's all wrong. So no, an expectant attitude towards the end of all things shouldn't lead us to frenzied speculation. Rather, what it says here is that it should lead us to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can pray. And basically, I believe what that's saying is that an expectant attitude towards the end should lead us to be focused and incisive and clear in our thinking and then in our praying. It should enable us in all the events and all the different happenings in our world, not just to see all these things as a mass of unconnected happenings as the world around us does, but rather to see in these things and seek to be discerning, seeing these things, the outworking of that final spiritual battle that's now going on, continuing to go on, between God and Satan, between good and evil. 
the vanquished enemy. And then, as we think in that way, as we get that, that spiritual perspective on life, then to pray. To pray through these things that we see. To join in that spiritual battle through our prayers. Because let me be clear here. The prayers of God's people do matter. Because while we can never force God to act, yet the reality is because God loves us so much, He does respond to the prayers. He does respond to the heart call of His people. So, while we cannot make God do what He would not do, yet I believe that there are things that He would do, but that He won't unless his people pray. And so prayer, prayer that looks at our world, that evaluates our world, what's going on in our world from a mature, sensible, spiritual perspective, this is a priority and a sign that shows that we are Christians living as we should in expectation of the end. Another priority that I think demonstrates this is love. Verse 8 and 9 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality, it goes on, to one another without grumbling. Now you see, if we really believe that we are going to spend eternity with one another, and that that eternity is coming soon, then we will learn to love one another. It's as simple as that. With all our faults and failings, all our different personalities and varieties of experience of life, we will learn to love one another. However, let me make it clear here, when it says here that love covers over a multitude of sins, I don't believe that that means that we should condone sin or ignore sin. That as a church, is as individuals, that we shouldn't deal with sin and take sin seriously and definitely deal with serious sin. It can't mean that. Because the Bible tells us, and the cross above all tells us, that our God takes sin seriously and that he expects us as his people to take sin seriously as well. Now, rather, what I believe that means is, first of all, that we should be ready to overlook and to forgive and forget the many little things, the trivial things, the trivial offences, the little sins, if you like, that are bound to take place whenever and wherever you get a sizable group of people, different people, who are vastly different in character and personality and background, gathered in one place. You know, we should face up to these things when they go wrong, but... We should then forgive and forget. There's a lot in the Christian life that we take far too seriously. But what this, I think, might also mean is that when there is sin in a church, and by the way, when is there not? Because we are all sinners. Well, whether that sin be serious or trivial, whether it be minor or major, we will cover that up, if you like but only in the sense that love will motivate us to hide that sin 
in terms of not gossiping about it and spreading the knowledge of it here and there and everywhere. You see, as Christians, we deal with sin out in the open, but we don't spread it around. We keep it and deal with it quietly and openly. In the light of this, then, it does sometimes, I have to say, astound me how ready Christians can be to go in huffs and bear grudges against little, about little things and also to gossip about brothers and sisters in Christ, to spread things around sort of flippantly and easily. I mean, listen, we have been loved so lavishly. We have been forgiven. Each one of us has been forgiven so much. How can we then be so miserable with our love and so unwilling to forgive? Well, let me tell you, I'll tell you how it can be, how it can happen. It happens when we allow to happen. What Hebrews 12, 15 tells us not to allow to happen. As it says there, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You see, what happens, what goes wrong in our life, I think is that that someone maybe offends us, something goes wrong, it might well be a little thing, but it's just at the wrong moment, and in that moment, we're spiritually vulnerable perhaps. And so, you see, the devil gets in, and he tries to plant in us the root, if you like, the thought of anger and resentment and bitterness, unforgiveness. The devil tries to plant that root within us. And if we let it go, it builds up and it builds up and it begins to destroy us, destroy our lives, destroy the church and everybody around us. What we need to do, though, is we need to root out that thought, that attitude that flows from that thought, we need to root that out immediately. As soon as we realize what's going on, as soon as we realize the damage that's been done, that we are getting bitter, that we are holding a grudge, we need to root that out by the grace and the power of God and using the Word of God. We need to deal with it. Because if we don't, then that root will grow and flourish in our lives. And as it tells us in that verse, Hebrews 12, 15, it will cause havoc in our lives and the wider life of the church, in our families and all around us. See again what it says. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no one puts to the one side, that no one ignores the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. Now, I know, and of course, it's not easy to live in this way. It's not easy to do it. not easy to deal with these things that hurt us. But, you know, the word that's used in this, this verse actually acknowledges this, that it's not always easy to love like this. It says, love each other deeply. Deeply, and that word you see could also be translated fervently. And, and the kind of picture behind it is that of an athlete, if you like, straining 
to put in the greatest effort. Now, I think what this underlines, what I believe it underlines, is that true Christian love is never just a matter of emotions. It's never about just loving when we feel like loving. No, true Christian love is also about the will. It's about sometimes loving when we don't feel like loving, when maybe everything that's in us doesn't want to love. In that moment, we have still got to determine to act in loving ways. God's calling us to submit our emotions, how we feel, to submit our will, what we want to do, and we call to submit it to what we know to be the will of God. And instead, let me say, that's not hypocrisy. Not if we're honest with ourselves about where we are. Not hypocrisy at all. That's bringing our minds, our will, our emotions into conformity, in submission to the will of God. To save all, though, all of this, though, getting a bit maybe theoretical and all, a bit kind of crisis-centered, if you like, love being about something that we've got to show and demonstrate when everything else in us says no, to save it just being about that, Peter then gives us a very practical, I think, everyday example of love. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, you know, the importance of hospitality is something that runs right through the Bible. It's something that God calls all of his people to be involved in. It's not just a gift for the privileged few. Some are given a special gift in hospitality, but hospitality is something that's required of every Christian. And I, I remember at a personal level, I will remember when I, I first became a Christian, I, I was living on my own. And the welcome and hospitality I received back then at Salkett's Baptist Church was really, really important to me. It, it, it played a big part in my life because it underlined to me that I mattered, that people cared. And because of that, I knew it was saying to me that God really cared for me. You know, I sometimes wonder today, have we lost it? Have we lost that, that hospitality thing that, that was so marked in the church when I became a Christian? You know, are we ready still today to make the time that's needed to offer hospitality, simple hospitality, because it matters. It helps to build a family. We want every person who comes into this church not just to be said hello to, but to be made as if they're really part of us. Are we ready to seek people out and show them, demonstrate to them practically through hospitality something of the love of Jesus? Now, I want to say, I pray that we are ready. Because if we do grudge hospitality, maybe because of the time, whatever that's involved, the effort, and if because of that we refuse to offer hospitality, we hold back or we do offer it, but we, we do grumble about it. Now if we do that, I believe there is then a price that we will have to pay. Wayne Grudem, he says here, he says, grumbling is ultimately a complaint against God and his ordering of our circumstances. And its result then is to drive out faith thanksgiving and joy so you see if we think that we're kind of looking after ourselves 
by refusing to offer with love hospitality. If we think that's us kind of, you know, taking care of little me and doing what I want to do, then it's not so. It's not the case. We will pay an unseen but a considerable price in our own lives. We miss out. We rob ourselves of the joy and the love of being part of community as we retreat into our own little shell. And I'm kind of inclined to do that, so yeah, it's a challenge to me. Well, the final priority that there are going to be in our lives if we're living in expectation of the end, the final priority that will be seen, should be seen, we're told here, is service. It says verse 10 and 11, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as if, as if, as if speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it in all the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to take long here because it's well known. We've covered this territory many times before. And that is what, what the Bible teaches, that each Christian has been given by God a spiritual gift, often more than one, but always at least one. We've all been given gifts. And God wants us to use them in his service and in the service of his people. Now, just to be clear, the definition of just what a gift is, is this, this is what I found, is any talent or ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry of the church. And, you know, as you read through the, the lists of gifts in the New Testament, as you do it, it soon become crystal clear that these are very wide-ranging. And, indeed, that some of them are almost, in fact, are completely open-ended. I mean, here it talks of if anyone speaks, and that could include preaching, teaching, prayer, prophecy, evangelism, witness, testimony, and some would say singing. My singing's not a gift, but hey, why not? And as for serving, well, how many different ways can we serve within the church? It is endless, and we've got examples of it in this church week after week. So the conclusion that, that I found in one book that I looked into is that one could say that there is an almost limitless variety of different spiritual gifts, all manifestations of the richly varied and abundant grace of God. But you see, the point of all this is this, that if we really believe that God is near, if we believe that soon we are going to come face to face with our God and give an account of our lives to God, so we want, we will want, to make every day count for God. And then so we are going to be willing to use our gifts, our talents, our time, our resources, ourselves, our life, everything that we have, if that's what we believe, we will want to use these things in his service. And this will show 
in the way we order our lives, the priorities of our lives, in the way we live our lives. And if this isn't the case, this will also show. So the question is then that of priorities. The priorities in our lives that demonstrate whether or not we really are living in expectation of the end. Indeed, it's all summed up, I think, in Peter's doxology at the end of these verses, what it's all moving towards. That in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You see, our ultimate aim should be that God be glorified in every area of our lives as we live in expectation of his coming. And these priorities that we're talking of, that's the ways that that will show that we are living like this. The question we ask tonight is, is this true of us? Is God really first in everything? Is his glory and that he be glorified in our lives, is that more important than anything else? And does that show in the way that we live, in what we value, in what we make important in our lives? That's the question to which only you can give your answer. Let's come and pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we recognize again that, Lord, if we're living in the way that we should be living, if our hearts are with you and right with you, that this is something that will show. If we're living today knowing that any moment could be the moment that Jesus returns, any moment could be the moment when all things draw to an end and when we stand before our Lord and our Judge, Father, if that's the case, then this will show in the way that we're living. It will show by the fact that we make prayer important and we seek to pray through life and the events of the world in a a meaningful way, that we're in that spiritual battle. It will show in the love that we have, love for you and love for one another. And it will show in our readiness to serve. It will show in the fact that we don't live our lives selfishly. We don't devote our time simply to ourselves and to our pleasure, but that we look to serve you and your people. Father, may we be a people, individually and as a body here, that demonstrate these things. Because we want your glory and power to be known here and in our community. Bless us, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.